Hi, I'm Lisa Smith Henderson, and welcome to another episode of Alma Am I Racist? You can find out more about the podcast and who the wonderful woman Alma was by going to our website, almaamiracist.com. And today I have a wonderful person who's now become a friend. Uh, her name is Peta, P-E-T-A Dukes, and she's in Durban, South Africa. And she is a recovery coach, a certified recovery coach. And if you want to go check her out on her Instagram, it's Peta Dukes Coaching. She specializes in recovery from addictions, from substances and behavior, also trauma and the mother wound. And that's how I came to work with Peta. She was working with me on some trauma issues. And as we got to talking about race and the podcast, she shared with me about her Zulu mother, which is what we're going to talk about today. Also, Peta is an accomplished pianist. So if you want to go to YouTube, you can check her out and subscribe to her YouTube channel at Peta Dukes. Now, I am so delighted to introduce you today, Peta, and to have you with me on this journey and for you to share what your childhood was like growing up in South Africa and your Zulu mother. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for asking me. I'm very excited to chat with you today and tell you a little bit about how it was. Well, can you start with your earliest memory of Daphne? Oh, sure. Daphne came to work with us when I was five years old. We had just moved from a very rural area where my parents owned a brickyard. Um, into a very small town and my mom hired Daphne to come and look after well look after us but really she was our housekeeper and um, my mum was quite traumatized Uh, she'd had an we'd had an accident um, in which um, an old Zulu woman was killed and my mom was quite traumatized and so there was a lot of reactive stuff going on and Daph was our rock you know, she was always solid and always there and always looking after us. And my earliest memory is running away because there was so much fighting going on in our home. And um, I remember running away and getting to the end of the block and not knowing where to go and just sitting on the pavement And Daphne came to fetch me and she said to me, where are you going in Ganam? And and Ganwam is um, Zulu for my friend. Where are you going, my friend? And I said, I'm going somewhere where people love me. And she said, I love you in Ganam. Come home. And that's my my earliest memory of Daph. And so... Without asking your age, what time frame are we talking about? Um, Mid-70s. Okay, so apartheid was fully active. Yeah, absolutely. That was how we grew up. And what was that like as a little girl, seeing apartheid in action and loving Daphne as much as you did? Um, So I don't think I was aware of it at that point. The brickyard that we lived on was very rural. So we lived outside of town on the brickyard. And most of the people I saw around my home were Zulu. 
we of course did go into town and my father played squash and so that was all white people but all the people that were um, on the brickyard were Zulu so I don't think I was really aware of apartheid at the age of five I do know that by sort of seven I was very aware of the fact that Daphne didn't live in our house she lived in a room outside she ate different food I used to love going to her room and sharing her food with her. She taught me to crochet. But yeah, when we traveled, if we stayed in a hotel, she had to stay in the, in the servants' quarters. She, you know, she couldn't stay with us and that kind of thing. And I, yeah, I just, I just remember not really understanding why she, was, why she couldn't be with us and why she was different, you know, why it was all different. I had that same experience at seven with Alma, not understanding why we couldn't eat at the same table and why I couldn't go home with her on the weekends. Did, did Dav have a family? Yes, she did. So she had, uh, she, she has, she's still alive. I was at her 70th birthday a couple of years ago. Um, she has three children, a, a son and two daughters, um, and they lived with her mother. And that's very common in the Zulu culture. In fact, across South Africa, that the mum, the mothers had to go out to work and they couldn't take their children with them. Mostly they were in domestic work that was live-in. And so their children stayed at home with their mothers. And so many people in our country grew up without their mothers and grew up with their grandmothers as their mothers. And did you have an awareness that she actually had children of biological children? Yes, I did. She spoke of them often. And um, we also did meet them. And at her 70th birthday a while ago, when I did um, have a chance to say some words, and uh, I spoke very much about the influence she'd had on my life. And I also thanked her children because, uh, as I said to them, you know, I knew that us having her meant that they didn't. Oh, Peter, so true. And it, it was very similar growing up in the South in the 60s for me, which was your home life wasn't the best. Daphne became your... So, so my mom was quite traumatized. You know, my mom was quite traumatized and she was quite an angry, angry mom. And she's a teacher, and I don't think that, you know, unresolved trauma comes out sideways in families. Yeah, so I experienced my childhood as quite difficult, and I was quite untidy, um, and my mom was very strict on me, and Daphne used to intervene and intercede for me. She used to make my bed so that my mom wouldn't get cross with me and all sorts of things. She was my saviour. <laughs> So I see now why the story of Alma touched you so much, because Alma would intervene when my mother was going to spank me. She would say, don't do that, or let us know when my mother was angry. At the point where you said you realized it was different, at what point, how long was Daphne with your family? Um, for over 25 years. Okay, so she was with you growing up enough where, what age were you when you became aware that apartheid was like a real thing? So when I was 10 years old, my, my parents were quite liberal. My mum had belonged to the Black Sash. 
She'd done political science at university and she was very against any kind of segregation. Daff was really well paid and she had or much better paid than everybody else. And um, when my parents built their house, she all her fittings were the same as ours, which wasn't usual, you know. Yes, very true. Um, she just she just didn't have an entrance into the house um, because it was illegal. So her room, although it was on the house, the, the entrance was outside because it, it was illegal for her to have an entrance into the house. And so, so my parents were very liberal. And I remember being about 10 years old when my mother sat me down with my one of my textbooks from school. I think it was a geography textbook. And she, she said to me, I, I just want to explain to you what Christian national education is. She said, this section here about all the races is wrong. It's not true. It's called propaganda. And wow. I remember the one particular thing said that colored people were, they lived in a certain type of house and they were tilers. And it was very like I, my mom taught me when I was 10 what racial stereotyping was. Wow. Um, I was very well aware. So, so I was aware in that way of what was going on. I was, it was also like I grew up in a very conservative town where the, the school was English and Afrikaans and there were a lot of people who were extremely racist. And I was aware of that. You know? So there, there were no black children at your school? No. Okay. Until I went to high school and then my parents sent us to away out of that small town to school and um, to, to a bigger center where there were private schools and those private schools did allow children of other color. And so then when I was in high school, I had an experience of being, at, well, with some, you know, it was a very small percentage. Right. So, Peter, when you and you say it very casually, just like I growing up saw colored entrance, white entrance, you say it casually, it was illegal to have a door into your house for Daphne to come through. Yes, the servants' quarters had to be outside. They couldn't stay in the house with us. That wasn't allowed. And we had, I mean... Apartheid South Africa it was it was law. You you couldn't marry somebody of other another color. It was called the Immorality Act, where cross cultural um, sort of marriages were illegal or made illegal. And yeah, I remember all the signs. Mostly, I remember them in Afrikaans. You know, blancas and me blancas, which is whites and non whites. So it was everywhere. And you said your mother was a black sash. Will you explain what that means? Uh, a member of the black sash. Yeah, the black sash was an organization of women who protested um, apartheid laws. It was a nonviolent protest, and they just used to wear a black sash. And then, and and it was a silent nonviolent protest. They would go and stand um, in specific places with signs or whatever just very quietly and um, protest in that manner. And did she wear the black sash around town so people knew? Oh, no, no. That was when she was at university. They would only wear the, the sash when they were protesting. Okay. How did your parents cope socially if they were liberal? You're in a very rural place. And 
having lived in South Africa, I know a little bit about the culture being quite racist, even in big cities. Will you speak to that a little bit? My mom was the headmistress of the pre-primary school. She and she and my dad had friends who were teachers, and most of them were fairly liberal themselves. Okay, my mum did a lot of work with schools, um, pre-primary education, that to make sure that the other race creches and things were were also getting the same kind of education that the white children were getting. My my parents had very progressive friends, you know. Um, Thank you. I don't I don't remember sort of racist comments and that kind of thing as a child growing up, except at school and that kind of thing. Did, were there other children that had the same relationships with their nannies, for lack of a better word, that spoke? in racist terms or did they did you all speak about the women the zulu women in your lives it was not something ever discussed i mean i i do i do remember the women who worked in my friends homes we all loved them very much you know they fed us <laughs> and they and they looked after us but i don't remember ever talking about that with anybody okay yeah And then were you ever, as an older child, able to, or did you and Daphne ever talk about race and what it was like? I I don't remember having specific conversations. I know that by the time I was 16, I was quite politically active mentally anyway. When, When I was 16, I went on a school tour to a place quite near my home where in the 1960s we had areas where that were designated white and there were black people living there and they were called black spots and those people were moved to other places so that the farmland could be for the white people. Um, And I remember sitting in a church where where such a removal had happened and listening to the historian telling us the story, it was it was a history tour that we were on, and she was telling us the story of what happened. And she and her husband, who was an MP, lived on the farm next door to this, it was basically a Catholic mission. And listening to what happened and how the how the people weren't allowed to take their, you know, they weren't even allowed to take their windows and doors off their homes. They were put it taken to this place that was completely barren they were given tents that they didn't know how to put up there was no running water the people got sick it was basically like a concentration camp and sitting in that church I remember being absolutely horrified that people could do this to other people and I remember sitting in that church with tears running down my face and being the only person in my class who was moved to tears oh. and being quite aware of the fact that people thought I was quite strange because I was crying. Because it seemed unfair to you. It seemed monstrous and completely yeah. unjust. And it was so, it, it made such an impression on me that I actually did my final English oral for my matric 
And for our American listeners, matric is when you graduate, correct? From high school, yes. Yes, okay. So I did my final oral on that whole story. I went and I did a whole bunch of investigation. I took slides and I went to the place where the people had been moved to, even though it was 20 years later. And I, I really spoke about the injustice and the horror of it all. Um, you know, most of those records were sealed. I wrote to the Institute of Race Relations to fund the information about it. I also went to the Catholic Church in Dundee. So I, I really investigated the story and, and told it as best I could for my English oral for my final year. How was that received? Yeah, it was very well received, and I'd done a lot of work on it. I got 100% for that oral. Good. (laughs) And it was something I was deeply passionate about, you know. Injustice has always, um, I suppose, partly because of my feeling of growing up, feeling unheard, and feeling that there was injustice in my home and that things were unfair. Injustice has always um, moved me to do something. So you've basically been an activist from a young age, if from your head into your speaking and then yes. now into your work. You recently got involved in the local political arena. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Okay. So um, I joined a movement called the Organic Humanity Movement, um, which is a movement that the, the primary aim and mandate of the movement is to get rid of party politics in South Africa so that we can elect our representatives directly from our communities into parliament and that we have a mechanism with which to remove them when they're not doing what we want them to do. I was very politically active, at least vocally, when I was at my first year out of school and in the time leading up to the 94 changeover. And I certainly voted ANC at that first um, elections. And will you explain? The ANC is African National Congress, and they are have been since 94 and are still currently the ruling party. Um, But there's a lot of um, political corruption in South Africa. Um, Not much has changed for most of the poor people in our country. It seemed the right thing to do to stand up and create awareness for this movement so that we can actually get to a point where each community is represented and and the, and that the people can get some justice and be properly represented and have their issues seen to, which is not happening at the moment. Well, and Peter, having lived there, and I lived there for four years, I left three years ago, when I come back to the States and I explain to people, apartheid is still alive and well, they're shocked. They're like, but apartheid ended. I said, well, yes, the structure ended, legally it ended, politically it ended, but in the running through of the psychic vein of most white people, it's still very much alive. And Absolutely, Lisa, it is. And, and you know, I don't think that 20 years or 25 years is long enough to have shifted the systemic injustices you know I think it's something like um, 
80 or 90% of our population is previously disadvantaged. It's extremely difficult to shift a society where 90% of the population is disadvan previously disadvantaged. And there is an understanding on the part of the black people that the, the, that the white people have been conditioned into how they behave. And so they went, when the change happened, there, there was this idea that there would be no like retribution. Do you know what I mean? We would we would try to move forward together. But you know, I get quite angry when white people say, well, apartheid doesn't exist anymore, and white privilege is a thing of the past because we don't govern anymore. But you know, I mean it's as simple as do your parents have a tertiary education? Do they drive cars? Have you ever been, have your parents or you ever been in an airplane? Have you ever visited a national park? Do you have a flushing toilet in your home? And, you know, I've seen an exercise where children all stand in a line and those who, whose parents have tertiary education stand, take a step forward and those whose parents drive a, 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 um, a motor vehicle take a step forward. And the gap just gets so wide that one can then understand what white privilege is. And it's, and it's very difficult for people to understand that actually the entire system is geared to white privilege, actually. And people think that just because the laws changed and anybody may buy property in any place and anybody is allowed to go into any place, that that can wipe away almost 30 or 40 years of indoctrination that a white skin is better than a black skin. And in fact, that the black people aren't actually people. Yes. That's and I ran into that. Some, we all took turns picking up the housekeepers at the gate. And I looked and one guy was in his Bucky pickup truck and all of the workers were in the back and it was freezing cold. And I said, why didn't you let me know? I would have gone and picked everybody up. And he said, they're used to it. And I was like, what do you mean they're used to it? And he goes, they don't feel cold like we do. I said, they're human beings. Yes, they're just like we are. So I, I wasn't a, a big hit in some circles because of that. And what I saw was, yes, politically things changed, but economically, white people still, for the most part, run that country. And the wages are still extremely low for Black yeah. people. Absolutely, absolutely. And the entire economic system in South Africa is predicated on cheap labor. And it's, you know, how, how does one in 30 years change that? It's really, really difficult, you know. And personally, I don't think that it's that the powers that be really want it changed. It's systemically, Africa is systemically kept down so that the rest of the world can continue to take its minerals and its resources at a very cheap price. And if the African people were to realize that they, in actual fact, have most of the mineral wealth of the world, the rest of the world might suffer quite substantially. And I have seen university economics lectures that attest to that exact fact. 
quality of life would shift dramatically if the African people really stood up and took back. Um, because mo in most African countries, and South Africa is no different, the mining companies and all of the companies that have control of the mineral wealth and the natural resources of the country are not African companies. They are companies like Anglo-American and De Beers and other those that sort of took the mineral wealth of Africa and the race for Africa in the 1800s, you know, or in the 1700s, the, the Portuguese, the French, the Belgian, the um, American, not so much the Americans, but the English. And, and Chinese so, have come in now too with the coal. Absolutely, absolutely. And so how does one shift that kind of systemic injustice? And that's what the organic humanity movement is about and why I stand for it, because what it wants is a sovereign South Africa where the minerals and, and the wealth of the country is retained in the country for the people so that we can actually make a difference and um, shift the experience of the majority of people of how they live and the sort of quality of life or the poverty level that they're expected to live with. I want to ask you to wind back because I jumped ahead with your uh, sure. foray into politics. But when you knew apartheid was wrong and, and when it changed, when uh, Mandela was released and was there great hope on the part of progressive white liberals that this was going to be a, a real sea change? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, I don't think that there were very many of us who were aware that, that the changeover was actually planned, <laughs> that it was planned and that, yeah, I, I only became aware sort of 10 years ago that, that it was a negotiated piece and that the, the African National Congress actually in negotiating a peaceful changeover, actually negotiated away a lot of economic power because their, their charter and their manifesto said that they would nationalize the mineral wealth of the country and all of those things, and, and that didn't happen. And those negotiations took place behind closed doors late at night with the powerful, and this is in South Africa, the people often talk about sort of white monopoly capital, and that's what was negotiated away behind closed doors. So I think that we had a lot of hope. We didn't realize um, it was a planned negotiation and that it was really just a facade. It had to shift so that it, the rest of the world could see that South Africa had made a change. But fundamentally, nothing changed other than the faces in, in the political arena. How disappointing. Deeply disappointing. Deeply disappointing and deeply disempowering for those of us who fought as well. Deeply disempowering, and we've been left with a sense of hopelessness because we can see that it was set up to fail, and that's that's a frightening prospect. That's why we, um, I think, there in our local government elections, there are over two hundred and fifty political parties taking part. Wow! And that's because people are waking up to the fact that that it's, it was set up this way, and we actually need 
huge change to make to make any kind of inroads into the injustice, really. I hear the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's held up as, oh, that's what we need to do in the U.S. My sense of it is that was great, but it never went past that. Did you watch those hearings? And for those that may not know about it, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the TRC did? Sure. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was was something that happened for a number of years after the changeover, and it was supposed to be a place where everybody could come and tell the truth (laughs) and and not be persecuted for it or prosecuted for it. A place where everybody could tell about the atrocities that were committed and perhaps find some kind of forgiveness. And it was an the intention was good, I think. It was to come and lay everything there so that we could move forward together. I think it was a token. I don't think that you can wipe away the trauma that both sides experienced, because I think that we have to remember that because of the Christian Christian national education and the propaganda that the apartheid government put out. The white people are are not quite as much, but are also victims of apartheid. They were brainwashed and they and they committed atrocities because of how they were brainwashed. And we all live with that trauma. This is an extremely traumatized country. Oh, Peter, this is so much to take in, think about, and. I want to talk to you some more if we could explore next week, talk about the trauma that is endemic to South Africa because of apartheid. And if you can elaborate further, because you are a recovery coach with a specialty in trauma, I would like to hear what you think might be some ways that healing can begin, not just in South Africa, but within all of us. So, Peter, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this today. I so appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, it's, it's not often that I get a chance to speak my full mind about it, so I'm really grateful, actually, to have had the opportunity to do that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Alma Am I Racist? You can find out more about the wonderful woman that Alma was and how she changed my life on almaamiracist.com. If you want to know more about Pita Dukes and to find out about her recovery coaching, you can follow her on Instagram, Pita Dukes Coaching. Thanks for listening and join us next week as we explore healing from trauma from the effects of racism, including apartheid.